Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've interviewed a lot of people on this show, probably too many from some people's point of view. Economists, politicians, political scientists, journalists, blah, blah, blah. But there's one group of people we haven't uh, talked to, and that's maybe because they don't want to talk to me, but I found one to talk to, a comedian. That's the first time a comedian's ever laughed at one of my jokes. Uh, Laura Lex is an upcoming, up and coming. Uh, I don't know if that, I hope, Laura, you don't take that as an insult. Uh, up, <laughs> I'm not going up, anywhere at the moment. <laughs> up and coming English uh, comedian, uh, upcoming author as well. Uh, so, Laura, um, is there anything to laugh about in the pandemic? Oh, there's plenty. There's there's always something to laugh at. You just have to make sure that your victims of your jokes are going in the right direction. I think there's loads to laugh at. You've got an absolute upheaval of the human condition and whether you're sort of experiencing the very worst end of it or the thin end of the wedge, either way, your life's been completely turned upside down. So of course there's funny stuff. Yeah. Are you are you having a fun a funny or a fun pandemic? No, no, I hate it. My life is upside down. My career is non-existent. Um, everything's nonsense. But like, I've never quite understood people that go, oh, you mustn't joke about that. That's serious. You think, well, the serious thing is still happening, whether I joke about it or not. So I might as well try and cheer everybody up. Like, you know, I, I don't really understand dwelling on the negative. I understand taking the negative seriously and considering the negative, but it doesn't really help anyone to not try and keep things light. Very briefly, Laura, how did you become a comedian? Or did are you just naturally one? No, no, I'm not, no. Um, I studied drama at university and then specialised in stand-up comedy for my master's degree. That's the very truncated version of it. Um I got into improv comedy at uni and then there was an offer to study it and sort of look at the psychology of humour and humour theory and joke theory um, and the psychology of humour as a master's and that sounded fascinating. And then as part of that, I had to do 10 gigs to sort of document how physical changes to the room affect comedy. And I found that really addictive, did 40 gigs instead of 10 and never stopped doing comedy, just kept going. Wow, so you can really study comedy and that's one way of getting into it? Well, yeah. I mean, the degree I did wasn't like, here's how to be a stand-up comedian. It was much more like, why do humans laugh? What is laughter? Physically, what does laughter do? What purpose does it serve socially? You know, what it, it was much more like sociology and then like... If you think about stand-up, it's so weird. You go and sit in a packed, crowded, dark room and listen to a stranger tell you secrets because you like the physical sensation of expelling air rapidly from your diaphragm. Like, that's what it is broken down. Um, 
and we love it. Like we chase laughter. We want to laugh. It makes us feel good, but we don't know an awful lot about it. We don't think about it a lot. So I just found all that fascinating. You must be missing your audience. You must be missing the stage. You're stuck at home, right? Like everybody else. Oh, yeah. I really miss it. I cripplingly miss it. I miss that. I miss the adrenaline. I miss the lights. I miss that camaraderie with the audience. I miss the smell of it all. I, I'm, yeah, I'm trying really hard not to think about it. But for me, stand-up is my entire life. It is, it's everything I've ever wanted to do. And it is better than than I dreamed it would be when it goes well. Yeah, I miss it a lot. Can you do a virtual stand-up? Can you be funny on Zoom? I haven't tried to do stand-up, to be honest. Stand-up for me is all about the room and reacting with the room and changing what you're doing to suit the room. And for me, personally, the thought of doing it to my webcam just... I'm too cowardly and I don't want to do it, so I'm not doing it. I know other comics have been. Scott Bennett's been doing live broadcasts from his shed and I think he's doing them really well. But for me, no, I'm a real audience interactive comic and I can't bring myself to do it without the audience. But uh, social media is really important for you. You got your, your new book deal through Twitter, right? Yeah, well, I'm finding other ways to, you know, communicate with the audience. I'm doing live YouTube every night where I write a chapter of a book a day based on audience suggestions and then read it live to an audience. And and that we sort of, you know, interact through the comments. People comment live and I interact with that and I'm tweeting and interacting and Instagram. I just can't do stand up like that. Like I have no problem using social media in other more creative ways and podcasts and all that. But stand up for me isn't for the internet from me. Stand-up's brutal, though, isn't it? I mean, you're up there on your own. I, I do speeches, which I guess is a kind of stand-up. People are usually polite. They don't throw bananas at you or boo you <laughs> off the stage. I mean, stand-up can be absolutely humiliating. Yeah, it can be, and it certainly was in the early days, but now I'm very good at it. Like, <laughs> by the time you're doing the big rooms and the rooms where it would be awful to fail, you're theoretically good enough that you won't fail. And and also, I always think the big trick with stand-up is the worst that can happen if stand-up goes wrong is a room full of people you've never met before and will never meet again. Don't <laughs> think you're funny. That's it. That's the utter worst outcome you know it doesn't mean you're a bad person and it doesn't mean you're not funny you just didn't make those people laugh on that day oh well so worst experience laura i have to ask worst stand-up experience the most shameful one the worst worst ever one was uh i was booked to play a race course for an afternoon gig and i turned up just of course assuming that by gig in the afternoon on a race course on race day, they meant it was in a in, in a separate room, you know, in a conference center around the back of the race course. No, it wasn't. It was a tiny stage in between the food stalls on the big thoroughfare where people were sort of coming and going between the racetrack and the bar. And their big idea was that between each race, a comic would just get up and just start doing stand up to the people milling past. And 
anybody that knows live comedy will know that 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 is a disaster and it was and so I thought fine all I've got to do is stand up and talk into the void for 12 minutes and I'll get paid and I'll go home and I got about eight minutes in and a man stood a couple of meters away from me said leant into one of the stewards and just said I just feel really sorry for her because nobody's laughing <laughs> and oh I sort God. of got his attention and went it's all right babe I really don't mind like it I'm made of quite stern stuff it's fine and he looked at me so directly in the eye in such a like genuinely worried way and just went but you must feel awful I mean nobody is laughing at you at all do you not feel awful <laughs> sort yeah. of it, I, I think you. his genuine compassion made it so much worse didn't you feel like smacking him in the face? Oh, but he just seemed, he was so drunk and so genuinely worried about me. And I sort of ended up consoling him and saying, like, I really don't mind. This isn't a gig in my head. I've already switched off to the to the possibility of this being what it should be. <laughs> well, from humiliation on a live um, racing track to the, the triumph of your... Jurgen Klopp tweet, which has resulted in your uh, in a, in a new book deal and in many hundreds of thousands of new fans and admirers. Uh, Laura, in March, you put out a tweet, and it seemed to go totally viral. What happened? Tell me the tweet and and, and what happened. Uh yeah. So the tweet was. Uh paraphrasing slightly but if I ever met Jurgen Klopp I'd say to him if we had a baby we should call it Clip just so he'd raise an eyebrow at me and tell me I'm a moron and by the time he'd finished doing that I'd be so naked um and then I sort of proceeded to a thread about imagining being married to someone as sensible as Klopp and and the next what had happened was it was the last weekend before lockdown and I'd gone up to Glasgow from for gigging sort of in that absolute chaos that we were all in thinking like, is the world about to shut down? Italy's in a terrible state. We know we're two weeks behind, blah, blah, blah. And I was sort of looking at my live diary and feeling really insecure about being in Glasgow, sitting there in this budget hotel. Um, And I just, I didn't want to go out because I didn't, what I was sort of thinking, oh, maybe I should be distancing a little bit. You know, I don't know. I don't have a mask and that sort of stuff. And mm. so I just got sort of writing and I think I I don't know a huge amount about Klopp. I'd seen him do this press conference where someone had said to him, um, talk to us about coronavirus. And he'd sort of quite grumpily said, no, I'm not an expert in coronavirus. Mm. Why don't you ask an expert? I'm an expert yeah. in football. And I was watching it and thinking, oh, I like that. <laughs> I wish more people would shut up unless they're an expert. That's a great way to behave. Um, so I just sort of started doing this thread about being married to somebody very sensible that puts down boundaries and tells it like it is. And I think everybody was feeling so like pent up and weird and scared. And, and Twitter that day was either fancying Jurgen Klopp or being terrified about coronavirus. And it just seemed like the thing that was a little distraction for everybody and a bit different and a bit fun and a bit harmless and a bit silly. Laura, we have a very literary audience. Not everyone, you may be surprised with this, but not everyone will know who Jurgen Klopp is. Perhaps you might explain. (laughs) Well, I didn't until about three months ago. He is the manager of Liverpool Football Club. Um, and he seems like a very nice man. I think he's German. And he... What do you mean you think he's German? You know he's German. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think yeah. But he's not a he's not a German German, is he? What does that mean? Well, you know, in the English German German kind of way. I mean, he's a he's a new German, very cuddly <laughs> and warm, and bearded and all that sort of thing. He does seem very friendly. He has. He's got a lovely beard and glasses, and he's always in a baseball cap. And he seems very sort of kind, but also no nonsense. Like he just mm. doesn't seem to, you know, he doesn't seem to bridge any any crap from people he seems very fun and he's a good manager I think the Liverpool lot revere him I've heard he's a good manager I have to say that I'm a Spurs fan and I was in Madrid almost a year ago when he when he humiliated us so (laughs) I would not personally get naked with him I have to say when I um when I read the tweet there is is there a sexual element to it or is being naked just a kind of metaphor a metaphor for comedians to have a laugh I think more to me, then the sexual element being important is the sweetness. So in the original tweet, yes, there is like the nudity, but there's no implied sex with him. It's more about one. It's more about the relationship between these two sort of characters, you know, because it's not Klopp. It's a fictionalized version of him. It's more about these characters and him being in charge and sensible and and her being silly and reacting to it and having that silliness commented on and wanting boundaries and wanting somebody that is sensible. Like, to me, it's a bit of a reaction to, like, not to sound too sort of trying to make a literary thing out of a stupid tweet about getting naked, but to me, it's like a bit of a reaction to to politicians being very populist. Mm. I'm craving somebody that is more interested in sensible than popular. So to me, it's about having someone be like, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not interested in that, no matter how unpopular it will make me. And I think that's the important part of it to me. And then the nudity... I find that image more silly than sexy in my head. Just this idea of like, oh, he's going to tell me off. And suddenly naked. I think for me, it's much more about silliness than seduction. In the rest of the thread that carried on, there's very little sort of graphic physicality because to me, that was just like not as funny as as this sort of very censored romantic allusions Mm. to it. Yeah, and I think there's a kind of intimacy too, because um, if you say if we have a baby, that assume you know you've got to do something to have a baby, and then you say, well, we would call it Clip, so the baby would be called Clip Clop, uh, and and he'd raise an eyebrow to me and tell me I'm a moron. That's a very sort of loving gesture, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it's sort of loving and strict and stern. Sort of a sort of patriarchal relationship, I suppose. So anyway, so you did this series of tweets and they just went totally viral, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a bit mad, to be honest. I was on the train home from Glasgow the next day, um, just watching my Twitter follower count go up and the retweets go up and lots of people that I admire going, oh, this is so funny, please write a book. And then in the next week... Um, lots of literary agents and publishers were getting in touch and saying, do you want to write a book? Because you're a very good writer. Like, what are you doing? What are you up to? And and obviously, I've been a comic for 10 years. So I've had various publishers and, and dramatists and sort of interested people come and see my shows over the years. And 
And so, yeah, within a couple of weeks, I had uh, a literary agent and then we got talking to publishers and chatting about what a progression of the idea could be, like what forms a book could take built along the lines of the tweets into something else. Um, And I was sort of lucky enough to get chatting to the people at Two Roads um, and we just had a great discussion and, and sort of talking about the future of what I wanted to write as well, like, like beyond this book, like what kind of novels did I want to produce and walked away with a deal to write this book and then write a further novel, which just, I mean, it's crazy, but it's happened. Writing and stand-up comedy, though, are completely different ends of the spectrum, aren't they? In one, you stand in a room packed to the gills with people. In the other, you're totally alone. Yes, but there is so much writing behind stand-up. The In terms of the work percentages, stand-up for me is 90% writing, 10% the performing of it, the editing and the sentence structure and the developing ideas and fully pulling everything out of an imagery and selecting the right words to lay the imaginative sort of... With stand-up, you, you need somebody... In terms of the linguistics of stand-up, you need somebody to get to the same mental image as everybody else in the room as efficiently as possible. And that is all down to the language that you use and the performance of it. And you also need the joke to make people laugh at the same time. So you have to manufacture a sentence structure that makes the word you want to elicit the laugh be the last in the sentence. Because in a book, a sentence can be funny and someone can stop at any point and find the sentence funny or stop and think about it or just enjoy the imagery for a while. But in stand-up, you need to orchestrate the room to all jump along at the same time. So there's an awful lot of writing. The thing that's hardest with writing a book compared to stand-up is knowing you won't get feedback on it for so long. (laughs) I'm so used to getting the sugar rush of feedback straight away. You know, I write some material in the morning and that night I can go and try it out. Whereas with the book, I write something and I think it's lovely and I've got to wait a year before anybody will praise me for it, (laughs) which is hard. I have to say you're shattering some of my uh, illusions about stand-up comedy. I always thought it was spontaneous. You mean it's written? You know what you're going to say? You know know what you're going to say before you go out there? You think I'd pay £8,000 to book a room at the Edinburgh Festival every day for a month just to hope that funny stuff would occur to me at the time? Sorry, my darling. No, no, no. No, it is all very carefully planned. And is that true for all stand-up comedy? You know, Jack Bruce, Woody Allen, they all know exactly or they knew exactly what they were going to say? I mean, I would assume so, yeah. Like, you Lenny, look at the intricacy. Lenny, Lenny Bruce, Bruce yeah. no, I mean, Lenny Bruce, Bruce maybe is a, a different kettle of fish. But, it, well, I mean, I don't know in those specific examples. But, like, any stand-up will improvise some things and will, you know, play on an idea and will riff or will chat to the audience and that's all off the cuff and and developed there and then. But if you've got a big set piece, yeah, you've written it. Of course you've written it. And do you have kind of um, riffs or a series of riffs which can come out of a joke depending on the response of the audience? Or do you always know exactly what you're going to say next? No, I'm quite fluid. So I've got four or five hours of material that I've developed over the years. And sometimes I'll go out knowing what I'd quite like to do, but I get distracted. Someone will say something and that reminds me of something else. And then I'll do it all in a funny order or add something in. I'm really flexible. Some people aren't. Some people would go out and do the exact same 20 minutes 
every single day for their gigs that week without changing a word of it. Um, and some people are much, much, much more fluid. Some people go out and go, I'll do 10 minutes of messing about with the crowd. I know what five minutes I do in the middle and then I'll play the rest of it by ear. I think that varies from comic to comic. Laura, finally, unfortunately, we people can't go and see you because of the lockdown, <laughs> but we can read books, so we can laugh. And of course, there's no doubt we, we certainly need to laugh in these sad, disturbing, weird times. Uh, what should people be reading? What books might they read to put a smile on their face in, in these dark times? Well, I like really escaping. So I guess I'd recommend The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. This is one of my favourite books. And there's a series, so if you gobble it up quickly, there's three more, I think, after it. And it's just really, really intricately well done escapism. Um, just fun characters, dirty, messy plot, great fantasy ideas, really adult. I love it. I love those books. You've been listening to Keenon, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.